Um, but, but as a kid, as a 14-year-old, I was, I was doing all that. But I, there was a moment that was really sobering for me on this trip. It was a really sober moment for me on this trip as a 14-year-old as a of all the distraction and basically just, you know, playing with my friends in different cities, you know. Uh, but there was a moment that was really kind of had a lot of gravity to it. And it was when I went to the Vietnam War Memorial. And that's because my father would, uh, fought in the Vietnam War. And, uh, and so he was a Marine. He is a Marine. Um, and uh, he was... He was, in, uh, he was sent to Vietnam as a 19-year-old, and, uh, and so he was a young kid. Um, he got wounded in Vietnam, lost a lot of his friends in Vietnam, and uh, when I was going there, you know, there was a particular friend of his that he said wanted me to look for his name, and I shaded in his name with a piece of paper and brought that back to my dad, a kind of special thing. But my dad told me something before I went on that trip that still kind of stuck with me. He said, there's this kind of phenomenon for Vietnam vets uh, and this might be true of all vets, you know, um, but there, there's this kind of eerie fear about going to that memorial because it's if you don't if you don't know what it is, it's basically just every name of a person that was killed in Vietnam uh, from from the American side, um, and so every American who was killed in the Vietnam War, it's just their names, a huge wall of names, and uh, the eerier kind of scary thing about going there would be that you would actually end up seeing your name. And I was like, that's the strangest fear because you're here. Clearly you lived. You know, but there's some kind of deep kind of haunting like fear that maybe I just, this has all been a dream. It's not been real. You know, uh, that everything I actually, I actually did never come back. You know, and, uh, and so there's this kind of eerie fear about going and seeing your name on the wall. And I was thinking about that this week because I think especially in kind of Bible Belt, America, um, maybe just our particular culture in Fort Worth, there might, uh, there might be this sense that we just assume that our name is written in this certain place, what's called the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation, this place where all believers, their names are recorded, uh, kind of sealing your fate as somebody that belongs to God forever, you know? And I think there's this sort of like... Um, Easy believism is the term that has been used to be called that, where it's like, oh, yeah, my name's written there. And it's sort of this weird inverse of this uh, Vietnam vet fear of seeing your name. I think we have this uh, just apathy or um, assumption that our name is there. And I think that the, the problem with that is that you end up missing out on the security and the motivation that comes in the, in the Christian life of knowing how your name has come to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There is, for those who know how your name has come to be written in this place, uh, that there is a security and a motivation that will uh, transform the way that you live your life day to day. And so uh, that's what I want you to see today, is uh, this pretty simple, it, you're, you're, you're going to be, te the temptation today is going to be like, I know this and I get this, but but, but I, I don't know if you do, okay? And Isaiah 53 is going to help us understand this, but God's love for you is revealed and delivered through the suffering of Jesus. God's love for you is revealed and delivered through the suffering of Jesus, okay? And so we're, co we're coming into Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is in the Old Testament because we're really doing this study of the Old Testament, this B.C. time period, and seeing how God is writing a history of redemption through Jesus all the way through that. And you come to Isaiah. Isaiah is a major prophet. We were in Ezekiel last week, another major prophet. Isaiah is this prophet 
And he was, uh, he was a prophet, uh, which means he was speaking on God's behalf to his people and the surrounding nations. So he had this crazy role to play in his life. His life was just to speak God's words to, to the people around him. And there was not like a Bible that it was, when he was speaking those words, it was Bible being written, which is pretty heavy, pretty weighty stuff. And he spoke a message before uh, Israel went into captivity. So just if you're trying to give a kind of anchor point to understand how this history of redemption really unfolds, the narrative of it, you know, uh, uh, all, of, all of Israel, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, that's his name gets changed. They become a really big family in the nation of Egypt under slavery. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go out from Egypt. I'm giving you a quick flyover, okay? So track with me out from Egypt. Now they're into the, uh, into wandering in the wilderness. That's where they get to Ten Commandments. They wander in the wilderness. Uh, they come up to this promised land that God promised back to, to Abraham a, a long time ago. They come up to this promised land. They don't really have faith to trust God to defeat their enemies. So they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. All that generation dies. A new generation rises up. They go into the promised land. Yay, awesome. They conquer it. Joshua's leading them. This is amazing. Except for then you come to Judges. Everybody just does what they want to, Okay. And then judges, uh, they start to, it goes from judges to these kings. They say, we want a king. God says, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to raise up a king, and he's going to be the Messiah. But they want these other kings. And so you have these kind of, just track of, of really not great kings, but there is a kingdom in Israel, okay? So that's what I'm getting you to. That kingdom ultimately is, is uh, conquered by, uh, by Babylon, okay? And they're taken into captivity, uh, and so that, that's, that's where, that, that's this really quick flyover, and then they end up coming back. Um, that's a different part of the story. But before they go into captivity, before that all happens, like a hundred years beforehand, there's this guy named Isaiah, and he's telling them, hey, God's going to judge you, Israel. He's going to judge you because of your idolatry, the way that you're worshiping other gods. It's going to go poorly for you if you don't repent and start worshiping God. Okay, so he has this message of judgment and a message of hope. In chapters 1 through 39, so it's 66 chapters long. Isaiah is super long. Uh, there's a lot of different components to it. But in chapters 1 through 39, he's speaking, to, he's speaking about this new Jerusalem and, a, and an old Jerusalem. And, the, and, and with this new Jerusalem, there's a new leader, and that's the Messiah. And uh, he speaks about that in chapters 1 through 39, but mainly he's speaking about the impending judgment of God's people for their worship of lesser, lesser gods um, and how that judgment is going to come. But that judgment would ultimately be recognized through the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, so, so this is all interesting, except for it's not a historical record. Like Isaiah is saying, hey, you're, this, this city is going to be destroyed and you're going to go into exile from this, this nation called Babylon. And a hundred years later, that's exactly what happens. And so all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, you know, I'm going to sit up straight because what Isaiah is saying is happening. He's saying some things that are happening. And that's the break you get at chapter 39 is exile. And from exile, then he's going to start to talk about a message of hope. Okay, did you track with all that? That's a ton of information I just threw at you. But I'm trying to give you context for, in your, to understand where we're at in the book of Isaiah. And so you should be sitting up paying attention uh, to this message of hope because, because what Isaiah is saying is not just what he thinks. It's what God has to say to his people. Okay, and it's a message of hope from chapter 39 on. It's a message of hope that God would restore his people and give hope to the nations. 
Okay, that's what he's always beating this drum of hope for the nations. But there's something surprising written into the message of hope. Okay, there's something surprising, and that's specifically how that message of hope would be delivered, how that hope would actually come to be, how they would actually receive this hope. And it was going to be delivered by someone referred to in Isaiah as, as the servant. Okay, so you start seeing this title of the servant show up all throughout uh, Isaiah. And normal, at first, it's just talking about the nation of Israel, but then he says, not the nation of Israel. I'm going to give uh, my servant, it's going to be one person, and he's going to have one job. And he would be the one to restore Israel to be a light of the world, okay? So the, the surprising part is how he would do that. It's how he would do that. So this passage, and, and, and that's going to be in, through suffering, right? So I'm just like, you know, like heads up, this is going he's, he's going to do that through suffering. This, this passage is famously called the suffering servant. And really, it's, it's the end of chapter 52, all the way through chapter 53 is this encapsulated prophecy about a suffering servant that didn't, you know, that's just, he, he was prophesying 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem, but then hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, the arrival of Jesus. And so he's talking about a servant. And what's fascinating about Isaiah chapter 53 is that if you went to a Jewish synagogue and they were reading through the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament uh, it, readings, you know what they would not read is Isaiah chapter 53. They will skip, go from Isaiah, the, halfway through Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54. They will not include Isaiah 53. Isn't this fascinating? This is a banned piece of documentation. This is a banned book from Jewish synagogues. And the reason why is that it causes arguments and great confusion for the Jewish people. And I think it causes these arguments and great confusion because this concept of a suffering servant is too foreign and it's too good to be true. And the Jewish, the nation, the Jewish nation, the people of, uh, the, the Jewish people have a history of being blind to their Messiah. And so they refuse to see him in Isaiah chapter 53. Isn't that fascinating? And so we're looking at this banned section and in that, we'll see that God's plan to redeem his people has always come through the suffering of his servant son. Okay, so let's look at Isaiah 53. I'm just going to get, we're just going to be in verses 3 through 6, okay? So you can pick up all the way back in midway through 52 if you want to get the whole section. Um, but, but this, again, we're kind of looking at a concentrated, small section. It says this. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So stop right there. I, I have this bracketed, this, this section, as the miscalculation. So when it comes to identifying or understanding uh, the, the redemption, God's plan for redemption, uh, and the servant, the, our ability to recognize the Messiah, the one who would redeem God's people. There's a miscalculation that we made. And, uh, and you can see it here because it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And our calculations, our worldly calculations, if you know somebody, just, just think in your life, you know somebody who things are going really poorly for right now. Like, and you can measure that any number of ways. They could be really sick. Um, they could be financially 
coming up against some really hard times. They could be socially being rejected. There can be any number of reasons why you could look at somebody's life and assume, based on the surface of their life, that God must actually not like them, that God's actually judging them, that something's wrong with them because their life seems to be going wrong. And this is our miscalculation with Jesus. When people, and this is written as somebody basically, you could imagine basically somebody who's sitting at the foot of the cross. They would be writing this, okay? And so they said this, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. I'll be honest with you, I read this passage like five times, and I was like, I know what esteem means, I'm, but somehow when my, I, my eyes would read it, I, my brain would just glitch and like turn off or something. And so like what, he, what he's saying is we, we didn't value him. We didn't recognize the value of this servant king. And so the world looks at sorrow and grief and looks away. We don't want that. Someone whose life is marked by that is not someone we want to be close to. I think deep down, maybe like maybe somewhere deep in your soul, you you know somebody is like things are going really badly for you. You're like, are you going to get some of that on me? You know, is this bad luck? So here's what is misunderstood about the servant. You want to understand? You want to know what's misunderstood about the servant? Here it is. Verse four: Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. You know why? You know why the servant is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? It's not because of his, it's not because it's his sorrow, and it's not because it's his grief. It's our sorrow and it's our grief that he was a man of that he was acquainted with. Do you see that? It's the same words, right? So uh, don't don't let this like kind of gla- you know go glaze over on this. He was a man of sorrows, the servant, and this is being predicted. This is, and this is, I think, what, what's happening here is we're actually getting a glimpse inside of the very, it's like God showing his work, like God doing a math problem and showing his work on that. Uh, here's what is happening. Inside of this, this servant, the Messiah, the one who would come to redeem my people, who would ransom them out of slavery, uh, out of sin and death, the one who would buy them back was going to be one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but not because he was sorrowful or he had grief, but because we were sorrowful and we had grief. And look at this. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, Now, you might understand what that means just at first reading, but I'll be honest with you. I read it five times, and I was still like, I know know what the passage is about, so I can kind of just like generally, abstractly connect these things. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, somehow, when we saw him bearing our grief and our sorrows, we thought it's because God hated Jesus. We esteemed him stricken. Smitten is a word like, it's a, you know, like people use that when like they have a crush on somebody, right? Do people say that? That's what I've heard it most frequently. I'm like, did God have a crush on Jesus? No, we're going to see in a second, God crushed Jesus. And our assumption as human beings, the watching world Okay, just the world, the, the, maybe not you, but maybe just the world, if they were trying to take an assessment of who is Jesus and what role is he playing in, this, in the history of redemption, they would look at Jesus and say, well, God must have hated that person. 
They, he smote him, crushed him, afflicted him. And here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus. Now, you might have grown up in it. You might have, like, you might have just been steeped in the gospel your whole life. Maybe, maybe just from the womb, you know, like, like Joanna Cha-Cha. You know, little baby Joanna Cha-Cha, she can be hearing the gospel until she's blue in the face, until she is out from underneath her parents' roof, okay? Don't let the radical nature of the gospel go past you in the midst of being familiar with it. Don't let your familiarity with the gospel kind of reduce or make you blind to the radical nature of it. Because you would not have, we would not have come up with the news of the gospel on our own. This is not a plan that we would have uh, manufactured that we could have come up with. Look at this. I don't think it's on the screen which is my fault, okay, so Matthew 16, so just listen to me on this, it's, it's kind of narrative, so I can tell you, okay, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus, uh, uh, Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus was like, hey, who does everybody say that I am, and they're like, Elijah, the prophet, you know, like, all these different things, but he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am, and it's this real, like, moment for him and his disciples, it was like a DTR, who do you say that I am, and they're standing out in front of the, this area, Caesarea Philippi, where there's, the nickname for it is the gates of hell, and, and, um, and, and Peter looks at him, filled by the Spirit, I think, and says, hey, you're, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, they're not going to stand against that. Not against my church that I'm building. And I'm going to build my church on this confession, this confessor and this confession that he is the Christ, the one who has been sent, the one who's been sent to rescue God's people, okay? So it's kind of this amazing climactic moment. And then Matthew 16 comes around, or the end of Matthew 16, because Jesus starts to say, how is that going to happen? How does it actually happen? Somebody show me the work on this. Show me your math. And Jesus says, you want to know the math on it? I'm going to have to suffer and die. And you know what Peter says? to this idea of a suffering servant, which should be super clear, right? Uh, he says this. Uh, I'll just read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chiefs, chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is making this very clear. Let me tell you what's about to happen. Verse 22, and Peter, listen to this. This is why the concept of a suffering Savior does not naturally come up in our hearts. You can know this for certain. Look at what Peter says in response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Did you hear that? The guy who just confessed that Jesus is the Christ said, there's no way that the Christ is going to suffer. That can't be the way that we're going to be redeemed. Far be it from you, Jesus. And Jesus' response is really fascinating because he just gave Peter a really high compliment. Man, God, you know, men did not reveal this to you. God revealed something to you specifically, Peter. And Peter says, yeah, but you're not going to suffer. And Jesus says this to him in response. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Which is a pretty sharp rebuke, right? I would not feel very, like, comfortable if Jesus, my King and Savior, looked at me and said, get behind me, Satan. I'd be like, oh man, 
what a big mistake. What mistake have I made? This must be a serious mistake. He wasn't saying that Peter was actually Satan. He was saying that what Peter was saying was satanic. It's demonic. It's in exact contrast with God's plan of redemption. Do you see that? What Peter was saying is that the Christ would not suffer. And Jesus is saying that's exactly opposite of God's plan. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on what God's plan is. This is a worldly plan that you're putting forward that I would somehow come and conquer and defeat everybody. And so why was Jesus so insistent on that happening? Why was Jesus saying that God's plan must, his plan of redemption must include a suffering servant? Well, here's the deal. Jesus knew who he was even when we didn't. Jesus did not need the world to say, oh, you must be the Messiah. He wasn't getting voted as the Messiah, right? Election year, what if we were voting and saying, you must be God's chosen one? That, like, that would be a pretty serious election, okay? I hope we'd all like, vote in that one. But, but that, Jesus wasn't looking for our votes when it came to being the Messiah. He knew who he was even when everybody else didn't, Okay? And then the second thing, he knew what it would take to redeem us even when we didn't. In fact, the scriptures would say Jesus knew what it would take to redeem you. Don't, don't make this an abstract thing, to redeem you, to save your soul from an eternity apart from God. He knew what it would take before time began. He always knew what it was going to take. And so in this moment, he is not going to let one thing get in the way of him suffering. Jesus is dead set on suffering for you. And so here's the mission that we see. And I, so the miscalculation, we have some worldly miscalculation that success and suffering are somehow uh, mutually exclusive, not in God's plan. So what's the mission for Jesus, the servant? Verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. See, Jesus isn't just going to kind of vaguely take you from being somebody who's sorrowful and make you happy, somebody who's grieving and make you celebratory. He's, he's not kind of just trying to change your feelings. He's trying to actually change your status and standing before God. That's what he's doing. He's not trying to change how you feel about something. He's trying to change who you actually are. Okay, and here's what is the problem for us. We have these two words. It says he needed to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that? Those are not just kind of like, oh, let me just kind of throw in some words here. And transgressions and iniquities are not words that we use very often. Okay, I would doubt very seriously if you use, if you're talking to your kids this week and, you know, or you're talking to your roommate, maybe it's your roommate and that you came in and your roommate, you guys have some conflict and you're like, hey, you really transgressed against me. You know, did anybody say that this week? No. And if you did, your roommate's probably like, well, you just transgressed against me by saying those weird things, okay? Uh, don't be all weird, and I won't transgress against you. Uh, but the reality is that word transgressions comes, it comes from a, a Hebrew word called pesha, and, and, and the idea there is breaking trust. It's, it's, it's a concept where, like, betrayal or broken relationship, that's what the root of that word is all about which is the root of all of the brokenness of the world, right? Every, every murder that's been committed, every uh, thing that's been stolen, every uh, you know, war that's been fought, every uh, funeral that's 
been done, all of the root of all of that is a fractured relationship with God. We broke trust with God. He didn't break trust with us. Right, do you see that? Back in Genesis chapter 3, we talked about it. So our transgressions, somebody had to repair the broken trust. And it says the mechanism, the means by which that would be, uh, that, that broken trust would be repaired would be somebody getting pierced. So to, again, this is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, but God was doing something very specific on the cross. He was nailing to a cross, piercing, not just abstractly or just, you know, kind of Jesus needed to die as our, as our example. No, he didn't need to die as our example. He needed to die because somebody had to be pierced if we we're going to repair the uh, fractured relationship that we have with God. He had to be pierced for our transgressions. And then it says he was crushed for our iniquities. Again, iniquity is not something that we are talking about. I don't know of a way to use iniquity effectively in a sentence anytime soon, okay? And if you do, if you do say iniquity to me, uh, I will feel like you're trying to just be ancient, which is cool. I, I can respect that. But uh, iniquity is this word, uh, abon, okay? That's the Hebrew word for what he's talking about. And it's, it's, tra it's translated as iniquity or sin or all kind of a few different things. But the heart of that word is actually the root of that word is a crookedness. And so think about it this way, that, that the servant would be crushed for our crookedness. And the idea there is that of, of iniquity, that word avon, it's, uh, the idea is it's not just the, your crookedness, but the consequences of your crookedness. Right? You can see this in people's lives when they start to live in a crooked way, when they should be upright, when they don't choose a, a straight path, they choose a crooked path. Mo one lie leads to more lies, leads to more, more brokenness, not less. A little bit of crookedness doesn't lead to less crookedness. It leads to more and more and more. And what you find yourself is actually, uh, and you, you, if, you've, if, you've been, if you've been walking in a sin pattern, maybe you've been walking in some kind of an addiction, you've been walking in some kind of uh, bitterness, you've been walking in some way in which you know in your heart the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you're taking a left, and I'm saying take a right. You're living in some crooked way. You know this. You know that the world is starting to cave in on you a little bit, that you're getting more and more stuck in this place where you can't be full of integrity because now you're trapped inside your own crookedness and you're being crushed by it. But that's what this is saying. Precisely, the language of the Old Testament over and over again talks about uh, when somebody says being, when the, when, even when the word uh, punished is used, it's used in a way, the way it's written is to say that they, was, they were visiting their avon, that their, 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 uh, their crookedness was being visited upon them, put on them, that would be laid on their backs, letting somebody sit in the consequences of their crookedness. But here's what precisely what Jesus knew had to happen. In order for you to be redeemed, in order for you to be able to actually stand upright and be the person, be the human being that God wants you to be, to be reconciled into a healthy relationship with God and then others and then with creation, what he knew had to happen is this, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Jesus, the servant that's being prophesied about here, would have the iniquity, the avon, the crookedness of the world, of you, put on his back, and it would crush him. That's what's happening in this passage. That's what's happening to the servant. But look at what happens from that. It says this, and keep reading, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And this is, this is what you've got to see, is that, uh, that this grief and sorrow in your life, okay? So just track with me on this. The grief and sorrow in your life, when you believe this, this is a breakthrough for you, uh, the, the biggest problems that you have, the biggest needs that you have, are a brokenness of peace with God. The shalom, the peace in every direction that you long for is not going to come through kind of treating symptoms of brokenness in your life or getting this thing that you've been longing for or that thing that you've been, you know, pining after. The thing that you need that would take away your, your deepest grief and your deepest sorrow comes from this, a lack of peace with God. You need to be healed. And so... Upon Jesus, upon this servant, was chastisement. He got, he got punished. He got chastised. He got wounded so that we could have peace, that we would be healed. In his wounds are your healing. And so do you recognize anywhere on your soul just scar tissue of brokenness? Maybe there are wounds in your life that are festering somehow. Or is there some scar tissue? Maybe it's, maybe it's just a numb spot of your soul that you have just let sit there for so long because you don't actually, and this is what I'm talking about showing your map. This is what I'm talking about understanding how did your name actually get written into this place? Because when you retrace those lines, you can have the security and the motivation, okay, to do something about that numbness on your soul, the festering wound that you have on your soul. You know where to turn and where to look for. And so the response that we have to this news about a suffering servant, this is, again, this is a concentrated, packed moment where we're seeing this is the essence of the gospel. And how do you respond to that? What do you do with this? Okay, and Isaiah, he goes on to speak about those who would either accept or reject the servant. It's never been any different than this. The only option that's, options that have been on the table from, uh, from eternity past, and it will be what marks us for eternity future, is what we do with this servant. Is his suffering, will we receive his suffering on our behalf or will we reject it? This is it. But we do see something that maybe... Uh, I think that would have blown away Isaiah. He spoke of it in Isaiah 53:10. He said, he shall see his offspring. Speaking of the servant, after he's been crushed, after he's been pierced, he said he, he's going to see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And it's like, what? This guy just got crushed. How is that even true? He didn't stay crushed. That's the truth of the gospel is that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, that on him was laid all of your iniquity, all of your crookedness, all of your brokenness. And, and you know what? I was reading Spurgeon preach on this. Spurgeon says, you know what? Don't forget. It's everything that you've ever done and everything that you will ever do. Every amount of rejection and rebellion, disobedience, 
um, uh, insolence in your heart towards God, he paid for it all. All of it was put on him. All of it crushed him. He carried it into the tomb and he left it there. He paid it in full. That's why he walked out. And so what you can have in this is actual security, actual motivation. What do I mean? I mean the security of knowing that God does actually love you. Because if you knew that, what would change in your life? If you really, no, if you like really believed it in your heart of hearts, you knew for certain that the God of the universe said, I'm going to love you now. I always did and I always will. I'm going to love you. How would that change your world? But see, it doesn't just uh, leave us in this place where we're like, okay, great. You know, Jesus was crushed for my iniquity. I guess I'll keep on being crooked. No, what happens when Jesus takes your iniquity is you can actually stand up straight. You actually have a motivation that's not to get love from God, but because God has loved you. Because you are secure in his love, you can have motivation to actually live out a changed life. Because his love for you doesn't depend on that. So the application I'd have for you is just to do this. Is, um, it's this idea that has been playing around in my head. Uh, it's called lift. It's, it's the idea of lifting for strength and not for reps. Okay, so some of you are like, I don't exercise. I'm like, uh, I only kind of do. Somebody else helps me exercise well, and they've been helping me understand this better where it's not just about getting all of the reps in. It's not just about getting the number of boxes checked or the number of things accomplished. It's about actually lifting for strength. The goal is actually to become stronger. And so the, the, the goal for us is not strength of being able to do all the right things. It's actually a strength of comprehending God's love for us. Ephesians 3 says it this way. For this reason, this is Paul praying. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You know what God wants you to be? Strengthened with power. Where? In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the goal of your Christian life is actually to live in that kind of power and awareness of God's love. And so the goal for you is not just to do a bunch of things. It's actually to be strengthened that every activity of your Christian life is not just about you getting it done and moving on to the next thing. You need to sit underneath it and not be crushed by some weight of I did this or I didn't do this. But in that moment, you're feeling and working and straining not to get something done so that God would love you, but so that his love would sink deeper and deeper into your heart because you know for certain you've retraced the lines. You've gone back over the math and you see for certain that God has been, that Jesus has been crushed for your iniquity, that he's been pierced for your transgression. You retrace those lines and understand that truth. That's what the maturity in the Christian life is. It's not doing more good things. It's, it's, it's actually knowing how much God has done for you, letting that actually get worked down into your soul. Do you believe that? Because that's the essential, this is the essential oil of the gospel, okay? People do weird stuff with essential oils these days. Uh, I watched a documentary on essential oils because it was, it was there, and I was like, what, what are people doing with that? And, uh, you know, we use it in our house, thieves. Uh, Lucy calls it monster spray. We spray it around her room. And uh, 
it keeps working. There's no monsters in there. Uh, I did tell her the truth that there are no monsters. Um, but, uh, you know, people do weird stuff with essential oil. They think it can, can, you know, bring healing. And you might be one of those people. You're like, yeah, look at all this data. Cool. That's, I'm not, that's not my point. My point is that this truth about Jesus suffering on your behalf, that is this sort of essential component of the gospel. And it actually has the power to bring healing. And so you're understanding your, your familiarity with that. You're retracing the lines of him suffering on your behalf actually is going to bring healing in your life. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to, to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You know what Peter was thinking about? Isaiah 53. And so if you know how much he's paid for you, listen to this, don't try to pay him back. Lift for strength, not strength of how much good stuff you can do, but how much you can know his love. And when you know his love and the cost of it, you know what it cost to get your name written in that book? Do you know how much it cost? It cost the piercing of the Son of God. It cost him being crushed. It cost the precious blood of Jesus to get you written into that book. And when you know that, here's what you're not going to do. You're not going to try to pay him back. Quit trying to pay him back. You know, every time you mess up or you sin or you do something wrong or you disobey God or you do something that is blatantly wrong, and you, you know what you say in your heart a lot of times is, you know, I'm going to do this better next time, God, and then you think he loves you. Don't pay him back. You can't afford it. You can't afford what he has paid. You just sit there and you soak it in and say, wow, Jesus, you paid for me to be reconciled to you, knowing that full well that I would do all of these broken, awful things. Just sit in it. Don't pay him back. And so if you don't, if you, you know, this is the last thing I'll tell you and we've got to go. If you, uh, if you don't know why a formula works, like in math, okay, so all you math teachers at home, there's a lot of formulas out there, but if you don't know why the formula works, then you don't really know when to apply it. The formula is this. God loves you. God loves you. Why? Just because you're great? Because you're nice? Because you're trying hard? No. God loves you because Jesus died on your behalf so that you could be reconciled to him. The delivery of God's love for you is captured in Jesus. It's where it's found. It's a famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So that formula, God's love for you, if you don't know, how to, if you don't know why it's true, then you don't know how to apply it. You don't know actually how to walk in that. It's true not because you're doing great things, not because you're going to do great things. It's not because of how much you suffer or how much you don't suffer. You don't know, that's not how you know God's love. Look, and, and kids, this is true for you. That we're, we're working out some ideas and some ways to capture some, some of the essence of God's truth for you. And we would say, God loves you. But the way you know his love is through Jesus. The delivery of God's love is going to come through Jesus and no other way. That's what John, in John 3, you know what he goes on to say? is that if you reject the son, if you reject the servant, Jesus, you have no hope. God's love is available in one way, and it's through Jesus. So you lift for strength, 
not for reps. Don't try to just get stuff done. Lift for strength, not, not just trying to get things done, but to let the truth of his love soak into your life. When you read the Bible, you're not just reading it to get it done. You're reading it to know a God who loves you. When you're engaging in community, when you're actually having authentic conversations and confessing your sin, you don't do that to get God to love you. You do that because God loves you. Or maybe you, you, you need help doing it because you've forgotten that he loves you. We're generous. We're, uh, we're faithful. We are uh, uh, sacrificial, not to get God's love, but because he has loved us. And so I'll tell you this. This is the last thing I'll tell you, and we're going to pray. And so, Andrew, if you want to come on up. Uh, it, it is a powerful thing if you go to the Vietnam War Memorial and you walk up there and you see all these names. And it would be eerie or scary if you walked up there and you saw um, your name when you didn't think it should be there, right? And there will be a time when we all review another memorial where there are names written. And it would be an eternally scary thing for your name to not be written there. Right, and this, it says this in Revelation 3, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And, uh, and so how can you know that your name's in that book? How do you know that God loves you? Trust in the suffering servant receive what he's done on your behalf. There's no other way. But when you know that to be true, when you have trusted in that, then you can be certain that your name is written. You can be certain that God loves you. You can see the work that he has shown on this math problem, this equation of salvation for you. It's written and it's finished. God loves you. We know that not abstractly, but through a suffering servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Um, at least, maybe it's just me, Father, but I frequently need to know this one thing, that you love me. But more than that, I need to know how you came to love me. How has your love come to be on me? And it's because you have set your affections on me. You have uh, sent your son to die and reconcile me to you. And so thank you for planning that, not just... Uh, not just at zero AD, but from the foundations of time, you planned for your son to be the servant who would reconcile us to you. That he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. But he didn't stay crushed. So I pray that today we would be able to know that. Would you do some work in the hearts of my friends here uh, in this room and online? Would you do something in their hearts, God, to help actually bring to life? Would you strengthen them to help them know the love that's in Christ, make them rooted and grounded in that? It's in Jesus' name.